Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 13 through 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee on the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As we've been going through the book of Matthew, we have seen in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the predestinating hand of Almighty God, that all prophecy must and it will be fulfilled. We know from the Scripture that because... The world lay in sin, under the curse of sin, because of the fall, due to Adam's transgression. We know from the Word of God that all have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. Everyone will perish in their sins without a Savior. We learned in Matthew 1.21 that when the angel came to, to Mary, informing her that she would bear a child, virgin child, and the angel told Joseph what to name this child. You will name this child Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so he will save his people from their sins. The scripture is abundantly clear. We can't save ourselves. None of us can do that. None of us can render to God the perfect obedience that God requires. He requires a perfect life in order to stand before Him. And we must pay for our transgressions. And because we have broken the law of God, there are none that are righteous. No, not one. As Isaiah says, all our righteousnesses or as filthy rags. That's the picture that is presented to us in Scripture. And this means if we're going to be saved at all, the penalty for sin must be paid, and there must be a righteous life presented to the Father who is holy. And so we have to pay for our transgressions, and we have to give God a perfect Life. We're told in the Scriptures, Matthew informs us that John the Baptist is the one who was prophesied, predestined, to be the herald in the wilderness to provide the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist was predestined to pave that way. John the Baptist made the path straight in the wilderness, according to the Scriptures. Well, how did he do this? How did John the Baptist make the paths straight in the wilderness? Well, for 
one, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And in what must happen is that John the Baptist, in his coming and his message, prepares the way for us to receive that Savior. That's what his message was. We saw in previous messages that the Scripture says in Mark, and Jesus himself says that the ministry of John the Baptist, as Mark 1.1 says, is the beginning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Mark 1.1 begins. It begins with that statement and immediately goes into the preaching of John the Baptist. We saw in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, that Jesus said the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And then the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached everywhere and everyone is forcing their way into it. And so we see that the ministry of John the Baptist is pivotal in the history of the world. Uh, Up until that time, as we've said, with his preaching, the New Testament is inaugurated. The Old Testament, again, was a period of shadows, of promises, of sacrifices, of types pointing to Jesus Christ. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament is a period of fulfillment, a realization of those promises. The substance of the shadows is come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, as the Scripture says, the fulfillment of all the sacrifices that were ever done in the Old Testament. And the New Testament era, as Mark and as Jesus says, is known as the gospel. And it began with the preaching of John the Baptist. And since John the Baptist is seen as preaching the gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that means whatever John was preaching was essential to man's salvation, doesn't it? If his, if his ministry is the beginning of the gospel, his message is essential to salvation. And what was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Our sins, as we've seen last week, that repentance, the nature of repentance is that we've got to recognize that we are sinners, that we recognize that we stand guilty before a holy God, and we must grieve over those sins, and we must recognize in our repentance there is no hope for us in ourselves. That's why John came preaching repentance. That's why he had a baptism of repentance. You see, the only thing that a sinner can do is for himself or herself to cast themselves at the mercy of God. That is what a sinner is expected to do. And remember the passage that we looked at last week in Luke 18. Jesus in his parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee who says, I thank God I'm not like that man over there pointing to the 
tax collector, the publican. He says, I tithe everything. I do everything all right externally. And there you see the publican over there beating his breast. Can't even raise his eyes up. And he's separated. And he's saying, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, who went away justified? It wasn't the Pharisee, the self-righteous Pharisee. It was the man who cast himself upon the mercy of God. That is the person that Jesus said, went away justified. And so someone, someone here recently told me they knew someone in a church who had said, they had never sinned. Never sinned. <clears throat> if that isn't the epitome of self-righteousness, I don't know what is. And <clears throat> such thinking. You know the problem, whether someone says they may not go to that extreme to say they have never sinned. I, I've known the people say I haven't sinned in three weeks or two years. And you know what the problem is? The problem is a very low view of the holiness of God. That's where first where is where it starts. A low view of God and a very elevated view of ourselves. And and therefore, because they have a low view of God, they have a low view of an understanding of how God's law relates to us. Jesus will get at this as we, when we approach the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. And so, the point here is, no one finds mercy. No one finds salvation at all who thinks they have never sinned, who thinks they are self-righteous, who point the finger at other people instead of pointing the finger at themselves, understanding their own inadequacies. You see, Jesus in his ministry will tell the Pharisees, it's, it's not the healthy that need a physician. It's the sick. Turn with me, for example, to uh, obviously, we're going to come back to John, I mean Matthew three, so don't lose sight of that. But turn to Mark, chapter two, and look at verses fifteen through seventeen. This is the incident that I was just referring to. We read, and it came about that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's why Jesus, in Luke 18, we've already alluded to, said that Pharisee who thought he was, who was self-righteous 
will not be justified. He didn't see himself as a sinner. And therefore, there was nothing that Jesus could do for him in that sense. Because he didn't think he needed a Savior. We all need a Savior because we are all sinners. We all have sinned. We have all failed to render God the perfect obedience that he requires. And therefore, we are in need of the physician, Jesus. No one enters the kingdom of God without repentance. And that was John's message. That's why John is said to be the one paving the way for the Messiah. Unless you have a repentant heart, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And so we see that's why his ministry is said to be the beginning of the gospel era. You've got to repent. You've got to acknowledge your sins. You can't be self-righteous. John's baptism of repentance. What did it demonstrate? Well, it demonstrated that we must be cleansed from all our sins, right, in order to enter the kingdom of God. We must see that union with the Messiah, union with the Lord Jesus Christ, is the mechanism by which we enter the kingdom of heaven. John's baptism was important. John says that, when he, remember, we looked at the passage where when the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to John to be baptized, he said, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Because he knew their heart. He knew their lifestyle. He knew that they were self-righteous and they had no part at all in his work. We saw that Jesus said that while he baptized with water, there was one coming after him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism is important. John's baptism as we see, uh, was geared around administering the sign, if we may say, of the covenant. And a sign points to something, right? That's what a sign does. It points to something else. But that is all that John could do. Point to someone else who could actually baptize with the Holy Spirit. And whose baptism with fire separated men, the sheep from the goats. And you see here, it is possible to be baptized with water and not to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But in the baptism of water, if there is a repentant heart, then that repentant heart does what? renounces self-righteousness. That repentant heart acknowledges sin. That repentant heart acknowledges, without the mercy of God, I will not make it. And so that's why John's message, though John could not deliver the thing, the substance, it was still important. But John makes it clear 
You've got to receive the substance. You've got to be truly cleansed by the one who can cleanse you, the Holy Spirit. And so we see here the Holy Spirit's baptism begins, it begins with regeneration of the heart. You've you got to look at it in its totality. It begins with the regeneration of the heart. It begins with the Spirit transforming that old heart of stone, of rebellion, to a heart of flesh that is pliable, a heart that's receptive to the Lord. But that's only the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate someone. So that baptism of the Spirit, as Titus 3 says, that washing of regeneration by the Spirit is that baptism that actually saves, of which John's baptism baptism pointed to, but could not actually deliver. But it was still important, because it prepared the way, because without that repentance, you're not going to make it. And so John is saying, I'm preparing you, your heart, to receive by faith the one to whom I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandal. And so, we see here that John the Baptist knew that he was but the forerunner of the Christ. His ministry, as he understood, was preparatory. Later on, he'll say, I must decrease and he must increase. And so, when John sees his cousin, Jesus, coming to be baptized, John vehemently protests. Isn't that what the Scripture says here? If you look at, at Matthew 3, what, what, what is John saying here? He says he tried to prevent him to be baptized by him. I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. See, he was trying to stop Jesus from being baptized by him. John says, and he rightly understood, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, Jesus. So why are you coming to me? And Jesus' response is most telling. And in Jesus' response is a, if I may say, a mountain of theology in what he says to John. Look what he says. But Jesus, verse 15, answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us, you and me, John, fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So why did Jesus come to John to be baptized? As we've already acknowledged, does not John the Baptist understand uh, that in one sense, Jesus in one sense didn't need John's baptism, but in another sense, he really did need John's baptism. And we'll look into that. The Son of God, the Son of Man, who Jesus is, does he need to repent of anything? He's the God-man. 
He is, as Scripture says, without sin. Scripture says that Jesus never, ever sinned. Not once. Not once had a bad thought. Someone said one time, he says, do you think the infant Jesus in his crying as a baby sinned? And someone, a theologian says, yeah, I, I think that the baby Jesus cried as an infant, but never sinfully. <laughs> and those of you that had young children, I think you can understand the difference. Because a lot of times in that crying is a lot of self-centeredness. Me, 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 me. Did he have a wet diaper? Or whatever they had. I'm sure he did. He experienced pain. But he never sinned, even as an infant. It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Because we're sinners. But he's the God-man. So, why does John say uh, to him, uh, or why does Jesus say to John, that is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, John. Baptize me, John. Now, when we were preaching through Romans, I trust you recalled of what we mentioned about baptism in the New Testament era. And that baptism in the New Testament era represented, in essence, everything that circumcision represented in the Old Testament. And so, what did circumcision represent? In the Old Testament, and what does baptism represent in the New Testament? The same things. The same things. And what are they again? Number one, baptism signifies foremost the concept of union with God. I mentioned to you when we went preaching through Romans about baptism, the dominating thought in baptism The dominating thought is union with God. Keep that in mind. Secondly, baptism like circumcision represented the cleansing or the forgiveness of sins. That's why you have the image of water, water that cleanses. And so circumcision represented That in baptism with that water represents that cleansing from sin. Third, what does baptism represent? What circumcision represented? Abraham, we're told. It says that he, Abraham, states that he received circumcision, uh, that in his receiving of circumcision, it was a sign of a seal of the righteousness of faith that he had before he was circumcised. Stressing the point that we are not to put this emphasis that some historically have done and what some today are trying to do in saying that all the grace, the saving grace of Jesus is there transferred to us at the moment that we receive water baptism. And that is wrong. That is not true. It may be there. 
It may be there, but you can't say, and that's why our confession says very clearly in its chapter on baptism that there is nothing conferred at the moment of baptism necessarily. That baptism is a sign and a seal of that which God will do in God's timing. Now, it may be in that infant, but it may be 80 years later in the life of that person who's the elect. But it will happen. And therefore, we don't rebaptize them because it still represents the righteousness of faith. Now, in preaching through Romans 6, I did draw your attention... And I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And in him, that is Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, this passage clearly states that Jesus spiritually circumcises all, and that this is a spiritual cleansing. This is a spiritual union with God in the truest sense And this reception of this righteousness is through faith. Now, let's concentrate for a moment on Jesus' comments to John the Baptist, where he says, Permit this baptism, John, at this time, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That statement, fulfill all righteousness, is a powerful statement. And in the Messiah's baptism, how is that righteousness fulfilled when John baptized the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't need to repent of anything, who had no sin? So how is he fulfilling righteousness? Did we not see that the angel telling Joseph and Mary, well, told Joseph to take Mary and the baby Jesus to flee to Egypt, right? Because Herod the Great was wanting to kill this king. And so in in that statement we see, and we looked at that passage in Matthew, and if you look at Matthew, um, turn back to Matthew 2. Remember there in verse 15? They were told, the angel told Joseph to remain in Egypt until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now that that reference there, that prophet is Hosea. And the reference is Hosea 11.1. And... We see the inspired Matthew is saying that the reason the angel told Jesus, well, told Joseph to go to Egypt is so that it will fulfill 
it will fulfill that prophecy of Hosea, that my son came out of Egypt. Now, if you look at Hosea 11.1, 1, who's the son that's being referred to? Israel. Israel was the son. And the context is the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. Now, we must understand that in the Old Testament, and this is important for us to understand, that the nation of Israel, in several Old Testament passages, is referred to as the son of the Most High, as his son. I have redeemed my son, referring to covenant Israel. The covenant nation is said to be redeemed out of Egypt. In fact... Is it not what God says uh, in the giving of the Ten Commandments? How does it preface? I'm the God who has redeemed you out of bondage, out of the house of bondage. Speaking to who? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, and Deuteronomy 7 talks about, it's a holy nation. That nation of Israel, that people... We're holy unto the Lord, covenantally holy. Now, we learned, did we not, when we were preaching through 1 Corinthians, and we got to 1 Corinthians 10, if you recall, who was baptized in the Red Sea? It says all of Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. And they didn't have one drop of water applied to them. But it did say they were all baptized. And then the text goes on to say they were all baptized. And yet most of them, most of them who were baptized fell in the wilderness. And it says it was given as an example to us not to follow their ways. Hebrews 3 brings it out that why did they fall in the wilderness? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. But they were all baptized. And so what we see, just because you are in the covenant, doesn't mean you're of the covenant. To be in the covenant means you are part of the covenant community. It means you have received the sacrament that places you in the covenant. Esau is said to be in the covenant. But Esau was not of the covenant. Same is true with Ishmael. Ishmael was in the covenant, but he wasn't of the covenant. And so what we see here, keep in mind that in the Old Testament, that it says that Israel, the nation, was redeemed out of Egypt. Now, in their redemption out of Egypt, in the last plague that finally convinces Pharaoh to let the people go, what was the nature of that, of that, uh, that plague that came upon Egypt? The angel of death was going to arrive. And if you did not have a lamb slain and that lamb's blood put on your doorposts, 
all the firstborn would perish. And the only way of escaping was to have the blood of the Lamb on your doorpost to save you. So when the angel of death came, it would what? Pass over that house. And so, it's interesting, it says, who perished? The firstborn perished. Who was Jesus? But Mary's firstborn. And where was uh, Jesus at for a time? In Egypt. So when it says, you go there so that when you come out, it says, as Matthew says, so that out of Egypt did I call my son. It's identifying Jesus with the nation of Israel, right? That's obvious in the text. Now, the Passover feast, commanded by God, was to be kept a perpetual feast among the generations of Israel, we're told. Do we observe observe the Passover today? In a sense. You know what the scripture says Jesus is? He is our Passover. Jesus is the Paschal Lamb of God whose blood delivers his people out of bondage. And so, his blood brings forgiveness of sins. And so, when Israel... So, that putting of blood of the lamb that was slain on the doorposts, to us, it's, we, we get it. It's, it's a type it pointed. It was a sign to point to who? Jesus. That's who it pointed to. Jesus. Just as that blood of that lamb would bring them out, so the, lamb, the blood of the lamb of God would deliver them. After the baptism of Jesus, he'll go into the wilderness. We'll preach on that next week. But when he comes back, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. And so we, what we see here, Jesus is the promised Lamb. He is the Paschal Lamb. Jesus is the Passover Paschal Lamb who sheds His blood to bring forgiveness of sins. As I said, there's a huge amount of theology in Jesus' statement. John, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, mind you, Jesus is the mediator. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah's purpose in coming into the world is explicitly set forth for us. In his birth, name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's his purpose. That's why he came, to save his people from their sins. Now, in this regard, in saving his people from their sins, 
what are the two things that have to happen? Well, here's the two things that, has to, that have to happen. We must render perfect obedience to God. That has to happen in order to be redeemed. Secondly, the penalty for our transgression of the law must be paid. God is a holy God. God is a just God. But since the scripture says that we cannot in ourselves give God that perfect obedience in ourselves, what does that mean? That means that the perfect obedience must be given through a substitute, right? If we can't give it, it has to come through a substitute. But you're going to have to have perfect obedience if you're going to be in the presence of Almighty God. And that perfect obedience, some way, somehow, has to be imputed, or that is, credited to us as if it's our own. It has to happen. There's no maybe about it. You have to have a perfect life if you're going to get into heaven. Secondly, God is a just God. The penalty for transgression must be paid. The shed blood of a... And here, but here's the problem. The shed blood of a sinner cannot save a sinner. It's not good enough. And the shed blood of another person shed on your behalf can't save you either because they're not perfect either. So in this shedding of blood, it demands whoever sheds that blood has to be perfect in order for the transgression of the law to be satisfied by a holy God. This means that redemption of sinful man can only be accomplished by God being a man. That's why our salvation demands that the God-man in the person of Jesus Christ, it is only He that can save us. This is why the larger catechism, by the way, states in those great questions, why was it requisite that the mediator had to be God and man? It had to be God. The mediator has to be God because who's the only one who's perfect around here? It's God. None of us are perfect. So if there's going to be a mediator, it has to be God. But it doesn't end there. This also requires there has to be a man. Because who's seen in the Garden of Eden? A real man. There has to be shedding of real blood. So, some way, somehow, this Redeemer has to be God in the flesh. This Redeemer has to be God Himself in human flesh 
so that real blood can be shed to deliver us, so that the justice of God might be satisfied. Jesus was the fruit of David's body, right, as the scripture says, in his humanity. He descended from the line of David. But as David says, Jesus is not, is not only David's son, but also David's Lord, meaning he's God. And so this one who's going to sit on the throne of David one day has to be none other than the God-man. Fully God, fully man in one person. So, how does the Scripture present its case against us as sinners? Just as Romans 5 tells us that we all sinned in the Garden of Eden when Adam, our representative head, sinned. For the Scripture says in Romans 5, For by one man's transgression came sin to all. That means Adam was our representative head. So we are sinners, the scripture says, by virtue of the fact that we are in Adam. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, if you recall, says, All those in Adam, what? Must die. We are sinners by the federal headship of Adam over the entire human race. But it doesn't end there. And we, in the likeness of our father Abraham, we sin ourselves, do we not? It's not just the fact that he sinned in our place, but we also sin. Because we have inherited a sinful nature from our first parents. Therefore, I've always referred to it as a double whammy against us. Our representative failed and we failed. We can't just say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Well, yeah, you would, because you do it all the time today. So, in this regard, how does Romans 5 picture our redemption? Turn with me to Romans 5 and look at verses 16 through 21. Romans 5, 16 through 21. I want... I want you not to lose sight of the fact that Jesus is telling John the Baptist, John, you've got to baptize me because we must fulfill all righteousness. And the reason I'm going into this, this is how he's fulfilling righteousness and what the baptism means. So, in Romans 5, 16, we read, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the tr- one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. 
For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the one act of obedience can be seen. There's debate as to what constitutes that one act of obedience. But that one act of obedience encompasses the death of Christ. But remember, what was required, at least in the Old Testament, if you brought a Paschal lamb? It had to be what? Without blemish. Perfect, as much as a human could render. And what was that picturing? (laughs) You're seeing what that pictured. The real Redeemer who actually brings the forgiveness has to be perfect and is that perfect lamb. And so in this regard, this atoning death of a perfect man atones for our sins. And how do we get the righteousness of God? This is important. How do we get the righteousness of God according to the Scripture? Through faith. Through faith we become the righteousness of God. Therefore, when John... When Jesus tells John the Baptist that we must fulfill all righteousness in his baptism by John, Jesus is officially, he is publicly becoming in his baptism the mediator of the new covenant. And since, now I told you, what are you not to forget about baptism? What is the dominating idea of baptism? Union with God. Union with God. And since union with God is the dominating idea, what is happening in Jesus' baptism? He is openly, before all, before God the Father, before witnesses, He is joining Himself with His people whom He's representing. He is in union with his people. That's why Matthew 2 said that when Jesus came out of Egypt with his parents, that he is the one who was prophesied to be that one, to actually redeem people. So as Israel as a nation comes out, Jesus is the representative head over Israel. His people. And in Jesus' baptism by John, we should not lose fact of the fact that the baptism does denote the cleansing of sin. Now, we did say that the dominating idea is union with God, right? But it also denoted the forgiveness of sins. Now, listen carefully. Though Jesus was sinless, the Bible says, nonetheless, he was a sinner. Now, how does it say? You say, well, wait a minute, that's a contradiction in terms. He was sinless and yet a sinner. Well, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and you learn 
how it says it that way. He, God, made him, the Father that is, made him who knew no sin. All right, it makes it very clear that Jesus had no sin. To be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The text clearly states the sinlessness of Jesus But in declaring the sinlessness of Jesus, it simultaneously declares that he became sin for us. What is that? Substitutionary atonement is what that is. That we, through the substitute, will do what? We become the righteousness of God. Now, what did Jesus tell John the Baptist why he had to be baptized? John, we must fulfill all righteousness in my baptism. I must join myself with my people. I must identify officially with my people for whom I have come into the world to save. I have to identify with them as the head of the covenant. And in identifying with them as the head of the covenant, in theology it says, my sins, your sins, guess what? were imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross. And then, like it's called double imputation. And then, His atoning work is imputed back to us, and we become what? The righteousness of God. Now, here's the important... If there were ever an important two words, here they are. How do we become the righteousness of God? In ourselves? No. In Him. In Him we become the righteousness of God. He became sin in our place. He's united with us. You see, in Jesus said, In my atoning death as a substitute, the righteousness of God is is fulfilled. My people for whom I am dying will become the righteousness of God in me. Therefore, I have to identify with them in every respect. And so we see that none, it's not the self-righteous that make it, is it? The only ones who are justified, according to Jesus, are those who cast themselves Upon the mercy of God. You can't be righteous yourself. You have to have the righteousness of God imputed to you. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. And look at verses 10 and 11. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. See there? He's a guilt offering. Offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, as he will bear 
their iniquities. That's where we mentioned earlier, our sins are imputed to him. Our sins, that's how Jesus bears our iniquities. They are imputed to him. He became sin for us. And that's why he's forsaken of the Father on the cross. So that he would be the guilt offering. So that in his death, the transgression of the penalties of our rebellion would be satisfied. Isn't God say he will be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, referring to the suffering servant? God the Father will be satisfied by crushing his Son, who will be bearing our sins, so that who will be justified? So that we'll be justified, we'll be declared righteous. You know, the word justification means to be declared righteous, not to be, it is to be declared judicially as being righteous. So that when Jesus was crushed on the cross of Calvary, he paid the penalty for our sins, and we have been declared forgiven in him. Not in ourselves, but in him we have been declared forgiven. And and so we can't be justified apart from his forgiveness. And so what we see here... Do you see how important Jesus' baptism really was? So that it was absolutely vital. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He has to bear, he has to identify with his people. And when we talk about next week of him going into the wilderness, there's a particular reason covenantally why he goes into the wilderness. Now, if you turn back to Matthew 3.16, it says, After being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. So we're told that immediately after his baptism, John the Baptist literally sees the, 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 the heavens rendered open, and this Dove, this image of dove descending and resting upon Jesus. That's what John saw. Now let's deal with a couple things immediately. I'm not going to spend much time with this, but our our Baptist friends like to make a lot of. Uh, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the waters. Yeah, he was under the waters and he came up. You know, he was immersed. I go time out, time out. Where does it say he was immersed? Now, all it says was he came out of water. But that is easily understood like this. John was baptizing in the Jordan River. All right? So, John likely is in the Jordan, and Jesus steps into the Jordan just like everybody else. And John baptizes them, and he will baptize them just like how they were baptized in the Old Covenant. By sprinkling 
or pouring. Is how they did it. And therefore, when it says that Jesus went into the water after being baptized, went up. So if he's in the water, if he comes out of the water on the land, he's come up immediately out of the water, right? Yeah. So it, it can be easily understood that way and ought to be understood that way. And so what we see here, actually the, the mode of baptism is not being presented here. Uh, and I, need, I will remind you what Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14 says. Talking about how John was, how he's likely was baptizing. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And if you look at Hebrews 9, it talks about various washings, and the Greek says various baptisms there. So we're, it's talking about various baptisms that were performed in the Old Testament. And so it was not unusual for them to sprinkle the blood, to sprinkle the water that represented cleansing. And so when it says that when he came out of the water, the heavens were open, and it says that... <clears throat> That the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, descends upon Jesus. Now, you understand why our Pentecostal friends have the dove uh, as one of their major symbols, because they emphasize the gifts of who? The gifts of the Spirit. So, there is that connection there. Now, when we talk about... The Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, right? Does God have a body? No. Son of God didn't have a body until the Son of God was incarnated and took on a human body. Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. But it says the Holy Spirit descended in as a dove upon Jesus. That's what John saw. Now, this idea of how God communicates certain truths to us, this is how God communicated truth in the Old Testament to us. In, uh, in poetic language, we call this a metonymy, is the official word for it. And a metonymy is where the name of a spiritual thing is transferred to a visible sign. The name of a spiritual thing is transferred to a visible sign. Several instances in the Old Testament. How did God manifest his presence to Israel in the wilderness? Through the Shekinah cloud, right? The Shekinah cloud went before them. It represented what? The presence of Jehovah with his people. Now, was Jehovah a cloud? Not really. But he says he's there. It was him. He says it was him. 
It represented his presence. As you know, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, as you know, is called the body of Christ. Now, is Jesus the literal bread? No. But the bread represents his body given to us. And so he is really there, but he's there through a symbol. And likewise, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, descends in the form of a dove and rests upon Jesus for a time. Now, let's take a look at a passage in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now, I'm fully aware that that passage finds its foremost fulfillment in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus entered the synagogue at Nazareth, when in his reading of the scroll of Isaiah that was given to him, he reads this passage in Isaiah and then closes the book and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But the point here is, is that it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. There in Luke 4 it says that in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was preaching in the surrounding areas of Galilee and comes to the synagogue. So in Jesus' baptism, it is the anointing of the Spirit of God upon him. So that we see this. And it was vital for Jesus to have the Holy Spirit descend upon him in his baptism. How so? Well, in carrying out the office of the mediator, he would need the Holy Spirit to perform his word. Like I said, next week we're going to take a look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. But just a preview. Who sent him into the wilderness? Did the devil send him into the wilderness to be tempted? No. The Holy Spirit sends him into the wilderness. You go, hold on, I thought thou shalt not lead people into temptation. So what is the Holy Spirit doing sending Jesus out there to be tempted to the devil 40 days and 40 nights? I'll tell you the rest next week. But it's the Spirit of God. Is it any, is it, there's no coincidence that his going into the wilderness is immediately, immediately after he's baptized. What does the baptism of Jesus again represent? His official coming as the mediator of the new covenant. And there is a reason why the Spirit sends him out there in order to defeat the great foe, the devil.
and he will. So, in this idea of why is it that he's descending as a dove? Why is the Holy Spirit descending in the image of a dove? Turn to Isaiah 42 for a moment. Look at Isaiah 42, and look at verses 1 through 7. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait and expectantly for his law. You know what the dove, the dove represents in Scripture? And I'm not going to look at all these passages, but you can go to Psalm uh, 68:14. You can go to Song of Solomon and see this. And also in Matthew 10:16. You will see a dove carrying this idea of gentleness, meekness, and graciousness. That's how a, a dove is often pictured. Now, what this is saying is, it's talking about the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah says, my servant, and who do you think that servant is? The Messiah. My servant, whom I have chosen and in whom my soul delights. We'll see what God the Father says in a moment. He will bring forth justice to the nations. But how is he going to do it? He's not going to bruise, a, a uh, break a bruised reed. Jesus, how does he call people to repentance? Come unto me, all ye that are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not like the old covenant. It's not like the old covenant where God was so holy when he uh, revealed himself to Moses. He says, now Moses, only you can come up in the mountain. Don't let anybody else come to the mountain. Don't bring your sheep up there because anybody gets up on the mountain, the moment they get on the mountain, they're going to die. If the sheep just wander up on the mountain, they're going to die. And it says, what happened if you touch the Ark of the Covenant? If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, it, we have instances of one sliding over and they touched it. They died instantly. Uh, we read in the scriptures that when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commandments initially, it says the mountain quaked, there was fire, there was thunder, there was lightning. It says the people were terrified, terrified of that. Is that how Jesus brings the new covenant? Now, what did that represent? It was true, it was meaningful, and it's not the fact that the God of the Old Testament is this bad God, this cruel God. No, it just demonstrated the holiness of God. But the marvelous thing in the New Covenant is, while there is the holiness of God maintained, you have the servant, the Messiah, coming and reaching out and saving the nations by his mighty power like a dove gently calling people to himself. And so that when... We read in Matthew 3.17 as we conclude. John says, And behold, a voice came out of the heavens, saying, This is my beloved Son, 
in whom I am well pleased. Now, we just read Isaiah 42. It said the father was well pleased with his servant. So the father actually speaks and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. In this baptism of my son, I have now sent the Redeemer into your presence to save you from your sins. And he will save you from your sins. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he sent who? His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in John 1.17, we see that John the Baptist talks about that he wasn't the Messiah, that he says uh, the one who is coming, it says, is the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the Son whom I will crush one day, but in His crushing I will redeem you from your sins. In His baptism, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness because He is now officially in union with His people. So that whatever Jesus did, he did for us. Our hopes laid with Jesus. That's why scripture says in Romans 6, it's not talking about the mode of baptism. It says, in Christ you have been buried with him in baptism, meaning you have died to sins, and then you will be raised with him to newness of life. It was necessary for him to be baptized, not because he was a sinner himself, but he had to be baptized to to make himself in union with us so that in everything he did, he would pay the terrible price for our sins, and then he would impute his righteousness to us. Oh, yes, Jesus said to John, We must fulfill all righteousness. Baptize me, God. Let us pray.